This is a JNNP podcast in association with the British Neuropsychiatry Association. And my name's Dr. Chris Butler. I'm a consultant neurologist and MRC clinician scientist at the University of Oxford. And I'm talking now with uh, Professor Adam Zeman from the University of Exeter, who has talked at this morning's meeting on new theories of memory systems and networks. So, uh, Professor Zeman, can you tell us a little bit about how um, the grand theme of memory can be conceptualized as comprising a number of different memory systems, first of all? Yes, so there's quite a well-worked-out taxonomy of memory, uh, which has as the first broad distinction a distinction between what are called declarative and what are called procedural memories. So declarative memories are the ones that you can articulate, spell out, who did you have dinner with last night, what did you talk about, whereas procedural memories are the ones that you show you have by doing something, for example, getting on a bike and riding off Declarative memories get subdivided further into short-term and long-term memories, and in psychologists speak, short-term memory is very short, so it's the kind of memory you use when you're holding a telephone number in your head as you move from the telephone book to the phone, whereas long-term memory encompasses any memory which is accessible to you after you've been distracted from the information which you acquired. Long-term memories get further subdivided into episodic and semantic. Your episodic memories are those single episodes, who did you have dinner with last night, whereas your semantic memory is your database of knowledge about language and the world. And these long-term memories turn out to be neurobiologically quite distinct from procedural memories, uh, such as your memory for motor skills, or what is called priming, that's the phenomenon by which uh, a perceptual stimulus encountered at one moment will affect the way in which a subsequent similar perceptual stimulus is processed a few moments later, or classical conditioning. And uh, a lot of what we understood or understand about these different memory systems um, arose from the very careful study of uh, patients with very focal lesions to particular bits of the brain um, and some of the um, uh, information that you gave us in, in your talk today explained how those models may still be extremely relevant but have changed a lot in the light of uh, new neuroimaging techniques and I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, certainly. So one, one of the themes of the talk was that for about 100 years, neurology was seeking centers for the various cognitive functions or the various subdivisions of memory. Um, and one very clear example of this search was the uh, discovery uh, in the middle of last century that the medial temporal lobe played a key role uh, in episodic memory. And of course, the, the patient HM, who had bilateral medial temporal uh, excisions, uh, enabled that discovery. Uh, and it's undoubtedly true that if you lose your medial temporal lobes, your uh, ability to acquire new declarative memories is severely compromised. But of course, declarative memory doesn't just depend on the integrity of the medial temporal lobe. It depends on the integrity of a whole network of regions connected with the medial temporal lobe. And we've known for well over a century that interconnected uh, brain regions are important for cognitive functions. So the realization that networks are important as well as centers is not an entirely new one, but advances in neuroimaging uh, have uh, revealed some new features of these networks. So functional imaging, PET and fMRI, has enabled us to visualize networks of regions that become active in the brain when one is performing a particular task, for example, recollecting an autobiographical memory. And then more recently, what is called resting state uh, analysis uh, has uh, revealed networks which can be uh, pulled out 
by quite complex mathematical analysis um, of the resting brain, uh, including, for example, uh, a network known as the default uh, state network, default mode network, uh, which is this network of regions that is especially active in the resting brain and which turns out to be of great relevance to episodic memory. And another very uh, central part of your talk was how these resting state networks um, that we see um, co-activating um, in, in the healthy brain are also incredibly important in different neurological diseases, in particular neurodegenerative diseases, and give us insight potentially into the, um, into the underlying mechanisms by which those diseases occur. That's right. So the, the dementias have been a confusing set of disorders, and certainly when I was training in neurology, I found it hard to uh, map uh, what I knew about the clinical features of dementia onto what I understood about the, uh, the working of the brain. And I think that our growing knowledge of uh, the networks which subserve cognition and memory uh, is illuminating the distinctions between the differing types of dementia. So, for example, the early uh, pathological changes in Alzheimer's disease appear to occur within the default mode network. Uh, which this is a, 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 a network which includes the medial temporal lobes, but also regions such as the uh, posterior cingulate uh, and medial prefrontal regions. Now, the default mode network uh, turns out to be important in tasks such as recollecting the past uh, and imagining the future. Uh, and of course, the early symptoms of Alzheimer's disease involve difficulty in recollecting the, the recent past. So the discovery that the default mode network is the focus for the early pathology in Alzheimer's disease helps to make sense of the early symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. By contrast, in another condition which we discussed today, semantic dementia, uh, in which you lose not your ability to acquire new episodic memories, but your stock of knowledge about language and the world, uh, the early pathology occurs in the uh, temporal pole, the left temporal pole, uh, which belongs to a rather different uh, network to the one engaged in autobiographical rec recollection and affected earlier, uh, early in Alzheimer's disease. I wonder whether there are other networks as well that um, are relevant not only in the resting brain but potentially to different neurodegenerative diseases. There are, there are indeed other networks and we know of them from uh, classical uh, neuroscience uh, but the study of rest state networks has contributed. So for example in the uh, context of vision We've known for some time that there are two major uh, visual pathways, one running from the occipital lobe to the parietal lobe, involved in the uh, control of action under visual guidance, and a second major pathway which runs from the occipital lobe down into the temporal lobe, uh, involved in visual recognition. These are sometimes known as the, the where or the how pathway, on the one hand, the occipitoparietal pathway, and the what pathway, on the other hand, the occipitotemporal pathway. This set of visual regions is interconnected in such a way that it shows up as a distinctive network in resting state studies. And this set of brain regions is affected early in the course of the posterior cortical atrophy variant of Alzheimer's disease. This is a condition which tends to present with difficulties with visuospatial control. So I remember, for example, a patient who early on found she was unable to engage in Scottish country dancing and another who had difficulty in uh, navigating roundabouts. Uh, simultanagnosia is another common symptom, the inability to pick out a single object from a crowded array of objects. So here's an example, another example of a, a neuropsychological syndrome which begins to make sense once one understands that it is affecting a particular network in the brain which subserves a particular cognitive function. 
Uh, another example comes from the study of motor control uh, and disorders of motor control. So the disorder of corticobasal degeneration is a bizarre one at first sight, presenting with typically with a dyspraxic arm, uh, sometimes with alien limb phenomena, uh, so that the arm behaves in the way that its owner disavows. Uh, it turns out that this disorder uh, involves atrophy in frontal and parietal regions, which belong to a, a, a motor control network, which again can be distinguished in resting state studies. So this provides uh, another example in which a, a domain of, of neuropsychological function can be mapped onto a, a network in the brain, which can be identified in rest state studies and indeed in activation studies, a disorder, with, disorder in which dysfunction of which gives rise to a distinctive uh, neuropsychological disorder corticobasal degeneration. And do you think that these um, networks or the dysfunction in these networks in neurodegenerative disease provide new insight then in, in fact, how the pathology itself spreads through the brain rather than just spreading from one cell to the next in a gradually progressive way? It spreads along axons uh, in a, in, in the, to neurons that can be much further away from, from the origin. That indeed, that seems very likely. So tra transneuronal spread of pathology within uh, the networks distinguished in the ways we've been discussing uh, is certainly likely to be, or may well be, uh, an important pathophysiological factor. Um, there may be other ways in which the, these networks are relevant to the understanding of pathophysiology. So it may be that there is some selective vulnerability uh, within distinct networks which accounts for the fact that they are preferentially affected by particular kinds of pathology, uh, and it may be that the regions within, uh, within networks which are affected particularly early in the course of disease relate to a particularly brisk flow of neuronal traffic uh, through hubs uh, within these networks. Great, well thank you very much indeed. These are certainly exciting times in neurodegenerative disease, and uh, thank you again for your wonderful lecture today.